Thank you, Jago. Okay, right, let's get straight into it. Turn to your neighbor for one minute. What is the kingdom of God? As you know it. Let's turn and talk. Turn and talk. What is the kingdom of God? Let's bring it back. Just uh, as a show of hands, was anyone like, yeah, absolutely, I know what it is? Yeah, come on. Callum, Callum, do you want to share what that was? Yeah, lovely. He found that on the handout, so that's a really good place to start. Martha? Sorry? Heaven, interesting. Anyone else want to uh, shout out what they think it is? All of creation. God's rule and reign. Again, I think that might be on the sheet. I did ask that question not realizing, of course, that you had what I thought was the answer. Uh, The first thing we should say is that the kingdom of God is the central theme of Jesus' teaching. It's so, so important. It is, everything can be sort of, that he does is a demonstration of it. All his preaching is around the theme of the kingdom of God. So the first thing to say is it's very important. Um, And what we're going to do tonight is consider that theme together. Jesus said this in Mark 1, verse 14. Or this is in the Gospel of Mark, excuse me, Jesus says this. Now after that, after that, John was put in prison, prison. Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. Now this word kingdom of God, uh, this comes up 154 times in the New Testament. It's really, really significant. Um, 119 of those times are in the gospels and then it's mentioned in Acts and then it's mentioned in the epistles. It's really significant. Um, So what we're going to do, to answer the question more fully, because we are going to arrive at an answer, something of an answer, but to consider that it is the most important theme of Jesus' ministry to say that it is actually not something that could be answered possibly in one phrase. Or if you do, you're going to need to unpack that. So that's what we're going to try and do tonight. Um, we're going to be going through the whole of Scripture, and there's a little principle that we need to talk about as I do that. If we can just have that picture up of, uh, yeah, there we go. So if you've seen Monsters, Inc., this is wonderful scene. Where he says, it's like he pretends to make a song and he says, put that thing back where it came from. Also help me. And the principle applies here with the context of the Bible. We have to be careful because what we're going to be doing tonight is pulling verses out of the Bible. We have to be careful as we do that, not just to try and make them say what we want them to say. Interesting principle as we go through all the scripture, but that's what we're going to try and do. Okay, so this is how I'm going to summarize what the kingdom of God is. As As we consider the breadth of scripture, it is this. The kingdom of God is the place where Jesus is king. It's the place where Jesus rules and reigns, okay? But it is not just a geographical location. Um, I wonder if you remember this scene from The Lion King, if we could have the video. I love that film. We could keep watching it. It was the first film I ever saw in the cinema. I was five years old. I know. I cried at the hyenas. So, what's the phrase he uses? Everything the light touches is our kingdom. We're just going to return to this image, but... Um, later on, but just to think about this now, as we think about what a kingdom is, often we can think about it as a confined geographical location. So in the example of this, this came to mind for me because, uh, is it Mufasa? Whatever the dad's name is. He says, everything the light touches, sorry, I forgot the name. Everything the light touches. So he says, this bit is the kingdom. And think about the United Kingdom. What makes up, what defines the United Kingdom? The border of the countries. Okay? Now, There is something to be found in the kingdom of God in that image, but it is far, far broader than that. So that's where we need to start. 
Um, we're going to start in the Old Testament as we consider what this means. So, um, there's at least um, 41 occasions where Yahweh, that is the God of Israel, is referred to as king. And then there's 15 references to the kingdom that Yahweh rules. Now, it's interesting how they're shown out. I want to draw out two things from the Old Testament. Firstly, the idea that Yahweh is the reigning king. Yahweh is the reigning king. So the Old Testament frequently speaks of God as a king who is exercising his rule over all creation. And um, the notion of Yahweh as reigning king is connected both to God's relationship to creation and with God's relationship to Israel. Um, And it's often his dominion over those things is often spoken in terms of kingship. So Psalm 47. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great king over all the earth. Now, if you're like me, I use the word awesome to describe, you know, a burger. But the Lord is the true one who should we call awesome. And he is king over all the earth. And then within that dominion, uh, this Israel acknowledged Yahweh as their king. So in Isaiah 33, the um, prophet says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. So God reigns over all things. He reigns over the people of Israel. You know, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Um, And God was king of the Israelite people, just as he was king of creation. In fact, so deep-seated with this idea of kingship. Do you remember that when the Israelites wanted their own king, and they actually rejected the rule of God, um, in 1 Samuel, the Lord tells the prophet Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. So the kingship of the Lord was expressed over all creation. The earth is the Lord's and everything is it, but it was also expressed over the people of God. Now, there are two dimensions to that. So over creation, over the people of Israel. But I just want to draw out why that is. So God is king over all creation by right. He created it. It is his. The earth is the Lord's. But his kingship exists in the human sphere as men and women submit, willingly submit to his rule and reign. So remember, God is king over all creation, and then he is king over Israel, but he is king over Israel when they submit to him, which they don't always do. So this is how he is reigning. Yahweh is seen to be the reigning king, but also he is the coming king. Um, So despite the reality of Yahweh's present reign, despite the Old Testament saying the earth is the Lord's, the Old Testament writers recognize that the world is not as it should be. Most nations don't acknowledge God's lordship, his kingship. In fact, Israel rebels against it, and creation itself appears out of control. Floods, chaos, famine, death, disease, they all seem to defy God's rule. And so the hope began to emerge that one day God's rule would be established perfectly upon the earth. So God is the coming king, the coming king. Isaiah 24 says this, The moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and Jerusalem. And before the elders, he will manifest his glory. So before elders, before people, he will be glorious. And then the moon and the sun, so over the created order as well. But also, Daniel 2, if you want to consider the kingship and the coming kingdom, Daniel is a great place to start. Um, It's an amazing book. 
In the time of those kings, this is from Daniel 2, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. The coming kingdom of the Lord. Do you see this? God was the reigning king. God reigns over everything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And yet, the Old Testament points to the coming of the Lord. Now, um, this reign, this both present reign and then coming reign, is actually really interesting as we consider the king of Israel, King David. Because God says to King David uh, that God will exercise his own kingship through that man. And then both through that man, but then also to his descendants. It's really interesting. Remember, God is presently reigning and coming to reign. And God says to David, I'll reign in your life and then also reign through your descendants. There's that coming and that present thing happening again. So in um, 1 Chronicles, it's really interesting the way the kingdom of God is expressed through this um, kingship, this earthly kingship. Uh, The ailing King David gathers the people of Israel together in preparation for the anointing of his son Solomon and says this, Of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Of the throne of the kingdom of the Lord. We don't find the phrase the kingdom of God in quite the same way, but you can still see, can't you, that God's kingship is expressed over creation then over the people, and it is expressed through David's rule. The throne of the kingdom. That's an interesting phrase. Um, it's picked up a couple times. Uh, the chronicler again says that Solomon sat on the throne of Yahweh as king in place of his father David. And then the queen of Sheba talks about talking to Solomon. Yahweh has appointed you, Solomon, as king on his throne. Isn't that fascinating? So Solomon is on God's throne. Interesting. Yahweh has appointed you, Solomon, as king on his throne. So what we see is that anyone in the Old Testament related to David and anointed as king is destined to carry forth the purposes of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. And this continues through David's descendants. Why? It's because God makes a covenant to David. It comes up in 2 Samuel where God promises David, I will establish you in my house and my kingdom forever and your throne will be established forever. So God makes a covenant to David and says, my rule and reign will be exercised through you, and I will establish you in your house and all those that follow you in that. Now, God is faithful to David and to the kings in his line, certainly when they are not. What did David do that wasn't, wasn't good? Speak up, yeah, come on. Bathsheba, yes. So basically, David spies a woman he fancies, and then has her husband killed, um, after he finds out that she's pregnant with his child. Very, very bad. If you want to read a psalm about him regretting it, read Psalm 51. And then David has the king Solomon. Solomon has an amazing gift of wisdom. Like, people come, the queen of Sheba, the greatest power in the earth, comes to hear him speak. And yet he, like the kings of France, had literally thousands of wives and concubines, which the Bible definitely does not condone. And then also, he worships other gods as kings, which is, you know, the big no-no of the Old Testament. This is what the Lord commands. And then finally, and I heard a talk on this quite ages ago, talking about Solomon's grandson, a guy called King Abijah, and he was king of Judah, and he was described by this um, church leader as the truly crap king of Judah, which I thought was a nice, a nice phrase. I mean, he basically turns the nation away from God. 
And yet, even against that man who's been so unfaithful, King Abijah talks um, to the northern kingdom of Israel as they're about to attack him, and he says this, and now you plan to resist the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hands of David's descendants. The kingdom of the Lord is in the hands of David's descendants. So even he can say that, even though David was unfaithful, Solomon was unfaithful, then go through them all basically, and especially he was unfaithful. Why is this? Because God establishes a promise to David. And what the Old Testament does, what we see is a contrast between God's perfect rule and reign and then the rule and reign that is not perfect of the earthly kings. And through this contrast, that promise of the coming king is stirred up. So remember, God is at once presently ruling and reigning, but they are expecting the coming kingdom of God. Um, And now who is that expressed through? Who is a descendant of David? It's the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. Do you remember these words from the Christmas stories? Isaiah 9 says this, But to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness, the other translation could be, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. And so it goes on. This is talking about the promised Messiah, Jesus. Jesus is, when Jesus spoke, his hearers were hoping for such a saviour. Um, and it's therefore, it's no surprise that when Matthew and Luke uh, give the genealogy of Jesus, they make sure to trace it back to David because it was David who was the one that the Lord has established his covenant with and therefore the one that the David's descendant was seen as the Messiah. And the son of David is a title that Jesus' hearers gave him. You hear that 17 times in the Gospels. And they call out to the son of David, have mercy on me, especially when they are seeking healing. And it's the messianic son of David that would bring salvation. And that's by the human lineage of David and then divine commission as the true son of God. And this promised king would bring the kingdom of God and the perfect rule of reign of the heavenly father of all things. So Yahweh is the reigning king and the coming king. Let's hold those two things together. Right, why don't we turn to our neighbor just to discuss that for a moment. What struck you? Was there anything that was new? Why don't we turn and talk? How are we doing? Has this been clear so far? Are there any burning points of clarification that anyone would like to ask at this point? And I might try to answer them. Are there any burning points of clarification or questions you might have? about this so far? Mm, we'll, say, we'll say no. We'll say no. Uh, if you want to continue reading about this, read the enthronement psalms. It's a great theme of the psalms, the enthronement of the king. You can read those. If you want to read this, I again encourage you to read the uh, book of Daniel. There's loads more we could say. I mean, we've literally just whipped through it at a pace. I'm going to try and do again the same thing for the New Testament here. Let's consider the ministry of Jesus. So, Jesus, remember that person, the promised king in the line of David, his whole mission centered on this happy announcement from Mark 15, that the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, one commentator I read said this, 
The kingdom of God is the key to everything Jesus said and did. We might even say that without some understanding of the term, then, it is impossible to make proper sense of the gospel narratives. Now, as I read that, I was like, great, you know, this is really important for us to consider, but also just to acknowledge that we can only do this in a small part. A friend of mine did his master's on this. He wrote 50,000 words on just this subject, and he was like, yeah, I only really talked about one aspect of what is a huge subject. So can I encourage you tonight, with this subject and with the rest that we do, hopefully this will prompt us to further study. But let's consider what Jesus meant. Um, Well, the first thing is to say that Jesus didn't properly, definitively define the kingdom of God. Now, he did say the kingdom of God is like, so he would speak in parables. Um, You could especially look in Matthew 13 for these. He said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like dot, dot, dot. But he doesn't give a definition. Why is that? Well, two reasons, I think. Firstly, there's a sense in which Jesus could assume his hearers already had a frame of reference for what he was talking about. Remember, Israel were expecting the king of Israel, the king of their nation to come. So him talking about a kingdom would have been something they might have had a grasp of. Secondly, it's because Jesus' entire ministry was the context, was the illustration, was the unpacking of this phrase, the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus preached, it says, Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, but then also he demonstrated its power. So in Matthew 4, it says this, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. What does this show? Remember, we're not going to try and be able to cover everything about the kingdom, but we're just going to pick out a few things. The first is this. The kingdom of God is the power of God. The kingdom of God is the power of God. Why do I say that? Well, it's because the Bible, when it talks about the kingdom of God, especially when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's mostly talking about the activity of the king, you know, not just some abstracted theological idea. Um, Remember earlier I said that we don't just think of a kingdom as a kind of, you know, where the light touches. We don't just think of the kingdom as the place where the sort of geographical delineation is. Instead, in Jesus' use of that word, it has a dynamic meaning to it, a dynamic rather than a static sense. So it's activity more than territory. It's power more than a place. Um, God's kingdom is not just a piece of real estate. It's God's activity of ruling. God exercising royal power, functioning as king. This is why the kingdom of God is better understood as the rule or reign or kingship of God. Jesus definitely shared this dynamic understanding. Why? Why? Because he would use phrases like the kingdom of God coming upon or the kingdom of God arriving or the kingdom of God appearing Matthew 12 says this, he's speaking to someone, he's speaking to the Pharisees and he says, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon a person. It's a dynamic meaning. And what Jesus does is he appeals to his miracles. So he preaches, think think of things like Matthew um, 5, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. Jesus preaches a way to live, but then also he demonstrates the power of the kingdom. And he appeals especially to his exorcisms. He appeals especially 
appeals especially to when he drives demons out of people as an example of God's kingdom, the power of God's kingdom at work. Um, And it was like a divine energy at work in him to overthrow the kingdom of darkness and set its captives free, to feed the hungry, to heal the sick, and raise the dead. So when Jesus spoke about, Jesus speaks about entering the kingdom of God, and it's like he's, he meant entering a sort of a realm, a sphere of God's power. And he talks about seeing or receiving the kingdom of God as if one is, can be receptive of the power of God's kingdom. And then he talks about inheriting the kingdom, and that actually means that we can be a beneficiary of the future triumph of God's transforming power. So, I've said it's uh, the kingdom of God's God's power, but I just want to extend that phrase even further to say this. The kingdom of God is God's power at work to put right what is wrong in the world and so accomplish God's will on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is God's power at work to put right what is wrong in the world and so accomplish God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, it is God's power at work. It's not just an activity. Excuse me. It is an activity rather than just a place. Because what do we know to be true about the world? That it doesn't reflect the rule and reign of the perfect king. I mean, Jess just spoke briefly, didn't she, about suffering. And I've just done a three-week series in the evening service on the very cheery book of Habakkuk. And the book of Habakkuk is a prophet wrestling with God because he goes before God and says, God, if you were like this, if you were so good, if you were so powerful, then why on earth is the world like this? And so as I talk about the gospel, um, the kingdom of God is the power of God. It is God's transforming power to a world that does not yet reflect its king. It's God's power at work. Remember, what's, what does Jesus encourage us to pray? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the questions I could get us to discuss, and I won't because it's really big, is God, is God's will always done? Just percolate that for a second. Is God's will always done? I don't know. I don't. I genuinely, I don't. I mean, there's, we can, we'll have, we're going to have a crack at it next week. We're going to do suffering next week. But Jesus commands his people to pray, your will be done. Now, there is a sense in which, remember, God is always reigning over everything. The earth is the Lord's. But also, there is a sense in which he is coming. So, no wonder Jesus encourages his disciples, just a little aside, it should be the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's prayer, because there's the admission of sin. Let's just throw that in there for you. Um, I've always wanted to say that. Never had the context to. Anyway, the point is, Jesus tells his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, so that earth, the chaos of creation, would reflect the perfect order, justice, perfection of heaven. Because if the kingdom of God is the place where Jesus is king, then at this point, heaven is that place. And Jesus' encouragement to his disciples was to pray that reality into this reality. What might that look like? Well, I mean, you could, this is where you could really say a lot of things. What, does it, what would it look like for the kingdom of God to come to earth? In fact, why don't we try and answer that with each other? Just turn again for a second. Just have a little buzz. What would it look like for, kingdom, for the kingdom of God to come to earth? What does it look like here? 
Okay, let's bring it back. Does anyone want to shout out what they were just discussing? And be brave for us. Yeah, does anyone want to shout out what they were saying? What does what would it look like for God's kingdom to come to earth? What what does that mean? No tears. Mm, lovely. No conflict? Yeah, absolutely. Anyone else? Don't be shy. Shalom. Mm, what does that mean? Yeah, that's really good. It's like, it's like we, the closest word to it, shalom, the Hebrew word of shalom is peace. But as Guyton's getting at there, it's much bigger than just peace as we talk about it. It is total peace. There was something here. Everyone in right relationship with God and with each other. Yeah, yeah. There's lots and lots of things we could say here. The verse that come to mind for me, just thinking about it, was from um, Isaiah 61. Um, where Jesus talks about the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the uh, press, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release for the prisoners. And do you remember those are the verses in Isaiah 61 that Jesus claimed as his own ministry. And Jesus, the demonstration of God's kingdom looked like people being set free. It looked like the demonic, the being demonic being cast out. It looked like the oppressed being liberated. It looked like forgiveness. It looked like justice. And it looked like, if we think about it in a bigger picture, it looked like some of these things that I know you were talking about. Let's just try and apply it to our own lives for a second. Because um, uh, one of the ways I think we can think about what does kingdom living look like for us might be to think about the power and fruits of the Spirit. Do we know what the fruits of the Spirit are? It talks about it in Galatians um, 5.5, where it says the fruit of the Spirit is Uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Fascinating. But what does the world tell us? If this is how we're to live, is this what um, God's uh, fruitfulness looks like in our lives? One of the ways, you know, the vision of this church is to see every life bearing fruit. How is that outworked? One of the ways is the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, changing us. But the kingdom of God looks like this. But what does the kingdom of the world look like? Because instead of love, generally I think we see lust. And instead of joy, deep joy, I think the world encourages more to seek entertainment. And we can go on. Instead of peace, there's franticness. Instead of patience, we want things immediately. Instead of kindness, it's self-preservation that might motivate kindness. So basically, you know, I'll be kind and good not just out of the goodness of my own heart to help you, but generally to get something, possibly. Instead of goodness, I mean, we don't have a standard of goodness now, I would say. It's just not doing a few things. There's not something to live up to. Instead of gentleness, you might say it's forcefulness. Instead of faithfulness, it's about having options, isn't it? Instead of self-control, it's about seeking satisfaction. And the reason I bring that up is because The kingdom of God is very much the power of God at work. But also, one of the things that Jesus talks about is that it is contested. The kingdom of God is contested. So as I bring up those examples of what the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit might be, we bear in mind that God's kingdom does not stand uncontested in this world. Ephesians 6 says this, 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. As we talk about the kingdom of God, we recognize that there is an opposing kingdom to God's good work. Jesus spoke about Satan's kingdom in Matthew 12. 1 John declares that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. Satan is called the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4. He's called the prince of the power of the air and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And the reason, so basically, Satan is depicted as having authority over earth. The ruler of earth. Why is that? Well, if we go back to Genesis, it's because God says to humanity, you have authority to rule and reign over this good earth that I've created. And under it, I want you to flourish. I want you to prosper. And I want you to work this so that my creation, that I've, so my Garden of Eden spreads throughout all things. So God gives us authority, but we give authority away to Satan when we sin. Now, part of the ministry of Jesus, part of Jesus' death and dying is to claim that back. But until then, this means that God's kingdom, God's perfect rule and reign is contested. Now, we don't often talk about Satan, and that's a good thing. We don't want to give him the airtime. He doesn't deserve it. The first thing to say as I talk about this is it's not two equal and opposite powers, like his God, the old dude on the throne with the beard, and then here's some guy with the trident, you know, in the red, whatever he looks like, whatever images we imagine to have conjured up. But that being said, Satan's power is at work in this world. And we, we know this to be true if we think about what the world is like. Because as I've just been saying, the world is, does not currently reflect God's good creation. And one of the reasons is because the kingdom is contested. The kingdom of God is contested. Sin, sickness, death, disease, natural disasters, all these things seem to deny that God is in charge. But, as I've just said, Jesus' ministry was to come into, was the light to come into the darkness of this world. And didn't we say that the power of God was demonstrated um, often by Jesus casting out the demonic? Why does he do that? Matthew 12 says this. He's speaking, and he's speaking again to the Pharisees. We picked this up earlier, but he says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Remember, the power of God is there. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. So the kingdom of God, part of what Jesus was doing, part of what Jesus initiated, is tying, binding Satan up and nicking back what belonged to Jesus in the first place. What do I mean by that? He says, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. And he's talking about what his ministry will do to Satan. This is worked out in two ways. The house is like an image of um, uh, ownership. It, it represents creation. And then possessions are us, humanity. But Jesus says, before one can take the possessions, they must tie up the strong man. So as he said that the, the kingdom of God is contested we immediately recognize that God has already won the victory. 
He has already defeated the power of Satan. So yes, there is sin. Yes, there is disease. Yes, there is sickness. Yes, there are natural disasters. Yes, this world does not yet reflect God's good intention. But God has already broken Satan's power. He has already bound him up. Um, have you heard this image before of um, the idea of, um, remember, remember what I said. I said that the kingdom of God is at once established, already here, happening, but then also it is coming. And then people talk about the now and the not yet of the kingdom. Have you heard, have you heard that before? I think it's really, really helpful. We're going to come, come back to it again next week. But basically, it gets at the idea of what I was talking about, of God's present established kingdom. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But then also, the coming kingdom of God. And we live in a time in between Jesus coming and Jesus coming again. But what that means is, as Jesus has come the first time, he has plundered the house of Satan. He has bound him up. But there is still a battle going on. The kingdom of God is still contested. So the image that is given is often like of D-Day and then considering V-E-Day. So the idea is that the Europeans, when they came to land on the beaches of France on D-Day, that is described as the decisive victory in the war, in the Second World War. And they say from that point, the war was won. But then between that point and then V-E-Day, the actual victory, was the most violent time in the rest of the war. Battle was still going on, even though the Germans were defeated. And I find this image really helpful because it describes what Jesus has done in his ministry and then on the cross. The decisive victory has been won, but there is still a battle. So even as we talk about the kingdom, we must talk about it being contested. Now, I was going to have time for questions here, but I think we just need to go on. So what have we seen? We've seen that God's kingdom is more to do with activity, power, than it is a place. We've seen that it's something that is contested. But also, I'm about to slightly contradict myself and say that God's kingdom is the renewed creation. God's kingdom is the renewed creation. Jesus uh, declared that a time of renewal was coming. He said, the time is at hand, the kingdom of God has come near. The time of waiting is up. The time for the manifestation of God's final rule has at last arrived. So remember, we talked about those things that um, would show, that would look like what the kingdom means. So we mean things like God's perfection, his justice, his freedom, his hope, his righteousness. And as Jesus came, those things were instituted. We get a little glimpse of it. But one day, God will make all things new. God will make all things new. Revelation 21.5 says that God is on the throne, speaking over creation. Behold, I am making all things new. So as we talk about the kingdom of God, remember, I said that it's not just a geographical place, but at the same time, of course, it is, because the earth is the Lord's and everything that God has created. But one day, the kingdom of God means the perfected, renewed creation that perfectly reflects our Heavenly Father. And um, Jesus' ministry and work demonstrates this totality of a creation. So, um, I'll read what I said. His exorcisms were proof that Satan had been bound and his house plundered. Remember that image? His healings were testimony to Isaiah's prophecy that God's coming reign would enable the blind to see, the deaf to hear, and the lame to walk. Um, his feeding miracles anticipate the end of famine 
his calming of storms and walking walking on water shows that God is Lord over creation, even over the storm. And um, his parables were coded invitations to discover the mystery of the kingdom in unexpected places and make it their own. And then his eating with tax collectors and sinners enacted the end of religious prejudice and showed that God was making a way through the blood of Jesus for all people to draw to God in a new relationship of intimacy with himself. So what we can say is that through the person and activity of Jesus Christ, the long-awaited act of God to reclaim the world for himself was underway. I'll say that again. The long-awaited act of God to reclaim the world was underway. So we can talk about the kingdom of God as God's reclamation, his renewal of all things, his restoral of all things. Remember, though, that's contested. It's coming, but we must talk about it in those terms. But we stand, don't we stand in the now and the not yet? Jesus preached peace, but he died a violent death. He raised the dead for them to die again. He would feed multitudes, but they would go hungry. And he sought to reunite Israel around himself, but he was accused of blasphemy and um, shamed by his own leaders. And so what we must do is trying to hold together the light, the coming kingdom of God, even in this darkness. Remember that image again from the Lion King. Remember what does um, the king say to his son? Everything the light touches is our kingdom. Great film, love it. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. Now, in a sense, that, is, that, could, that, sort of that, and that kind of analogy could be true. Remember, it's the power of God that demonstrates the kingdom of God. But at the same time, God claims ownership over everything. So it's not just where the light touches is our kingdom. It's everything is my kingdom. But now we live in a time, you know, Simba turns and he says, look, what about that dark place? And our world, although it is the kingdom, it is the present kingdom of God, there is still darkness. And we live in the now and the not yet. We live um, after the decisive victory and before the coming king, when all will be renewed. So um, one of the questions I asked you earlier was to, what would it look like if God's kingdom came? And we don't have time, but the question we could ask for ourselves here is, you know, what would it look like? What would it look like if we were to pray, your kingdom come? What would it look like for you to pray, your kingdom come in your workplace? What would it look like to pray, your kingdom come over your family life, your home life, over your flatmates? What would it look like to pray, your kingdom come over your own life, over your own attitudes, over your own behaviors? Because the greatest sign of God's new creation is what God does in us. We get made new when we become Christians. When we give our lives to God, we are born again. We are a new creation. Because some people can, you can sort of reduce the kingdom of God, I think, to either, you can just say it's just social action, which is amazing. Or you can say it's just healing and miracles. Now, I don't know what you're like. Some people go for one or the other. I personally go for the healing and miracles thing. But then, People come before Jesus to say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he says, away from me. I never knew you. Remarkable. But what we must do is seek God's kingdom, even as God has begun his own kingdom in us. God makes us new by the power of his spirit. 
And that is what we seek. So remember, what is the place of the kingdom? It's the place where Jesus is king. And for us to seek the kingdom of God is to seek people's lives to recognize that truth. Whether that's for the first time, evangelism, or in the journey of that, which is called discipleship. This is what we're seeking for our lives, for this church, for Clapham, for London, to become increasingly the place where Jesus is recognized as king. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yes. (laughs) Why don't we pray? Why don't we pray together? God, I thank you that your proclamation of the coming kingdom is fundamentally something you are doing. The kingdom is near. And I pray, God, that you'd help us be people who continue to live in that truth, who repent, who live lives in accordance with it. But, Lord, I pray you'd excite us and stir us to pray your kingdom come, your will be done in our lives, in our places of work, in our places of life, in our families, over everything, God. And we pray that this church and this, this city would reflect your kingdom. And in the meantime, God, while it doesn't, I pray that you would help us trust you and love you. Amen.